0: Good afternoon, and welcome to the 175th of The COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles, I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today we have a discussion of COVID-19 and the technology of response in Asia with Yansil Kang and Hallam Stevens. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. And just a special thanks. People have been sending really excellent suggestions for future guests and topics, and I do appreciate that. Please keep those coming. You can reach out to me on Twitter or you can email me directly at sgk23 at drexel.edu. Love to hear from you. As of today, November 24th, 2020, there are 1,403,513 deaths from COVID 19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 12,448,099 cases in the United States, and there are now a total of 258,364 deaths from COVID 19 reported in the United States. In Singapore, there have been 58,183 cases with 28 deaths, and in South Korea, 31,353 cases reported with 510 deaths. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way. I'd like to continue that now. The headline is COVID-19 deluge overwhelms South Korea's delivery drivers, I'm so exhausted. This appeared in the Wall Street Journal yesterday, 23rd of November, by Dasal Yoon. In the final days of his life, Kim Dong-hee had worked nearly 24 hours straight, delivering packages around Seoul, and still had a quarter of a truck left to unload. I'm so exhausted, he told a co-worker at 4.28 a.m. in a text message last month. Days later, Mr. Kim, 36 years old, was found dead at home because of heart failure. Mr. Kim is one of 15 delivery drivers who have died in South Korea this year, prompting calls for more worker protections in the industry. South Korean President Moon Jae-in has urged action to protect delivery workers who exist, quote, in the blind spot of our system, unquote. This month, The country's employment minister proposed sweeping changes, such as halting daily deliveries at 10 p.m. rather than offering them around the clock and implementing a five-day work week. The pandemic-fueled shift to online buying has exacted a human toll on the world's delivery workers. Orders have surged 50% in Europe, 70% in Asia-Pacific, and 120% in North America year over year, according to a July report from the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. Drivers have gone on strike in the United States, the UK, Italy, Spain, and China. In the US, Amazon.com hired rescue drivers to deal with the uptick in demand, while others added thousands of jobs. Workers won increased health and safety benefits in the UK, and formal work contracts in Spain. Delivery workers are particularly vulnerable in South Korea where they are classified as independent contractors rather than full-time employees, meaning they lack guaranteed break time caps on work hours or compensation if injured on the job. The typical South Korean delivery driver works between 13 hours and 16 hours a day without overtime pay or compensation for loading trucks with parcels that can take up to a third of their shift according to the Tech Bay Union, a labor group that has been advocating on their behalf. They are fined by the agencies that employ them if deliveries are late. Compensation is on a per parcel basis at 70 cents a package. The pandemic has created a perfect storm for delivery work and exposed poor conditions that had been lurking beneath the surface, said Jake Wilson, a sociology professor at California State University, Long Beach, who co-edited a book on Amazon's delivery workforce. In the case of South Korean delivery workers, Mr. Wilson said, it demonstrates how the industry has really raced to the bottom of worker protection. Among wealthier countries, South Korea logs more work hours than every OECD country except Mexico and Costa Rica. Mr. Moon made work-life balance a priority, promising citizens a right to rest, and in 2018, lowered the maximum work week by 16 hours to 52 hours a restriction that doesn't apply to delivery drivers because they are independent contractors. It is unclear whether the working conditions were factors in the deaths of the 15 delivery drivers that the labor group has attributed to overwork. Under South Korean labor standards, deaths can be attributed to overwork if the individual logged more than 60 hours each week for three months before they died. But it is a distinction without a legal or medical standing. Standing at six feet, three inches, and weighing 260 pounds, Mr. Kim had no underlying conditions when he collapsed, said his brother Kim Dong-kyu. An initial autopsy showed Kim Dong-hee had died of a heart attack, his brother said. Family members of other delivery workers who have died say logistics firms have disputed that overwork led to the deaths, saying the workers had underlying conditions or that they delivered fewer parcels than reported. The families deny those assertions. CJ Logistics Corporation and Hanjin Transportation Company, two of the country's largest logistics firms, have made public apologies over the deaths of workers during the pandemic. CJ Logistics has said it would hire 4,000 new workers to reduce the amount of unpaid work drivers face sorting packages. Hanjin will halt nighttime delivery shifts starting this month. Hanjin made a public apology over Mr. Kim's death last month, vowing to seek ways to reduce the workload and improve working conditions. We will try our best so that such a tragic incident doesn't happen again, Hanjin said. In recent months, South Korea's delivery drivers have gone on strike, hoisting signs that read, We want to live. While customers benefit from express deliveries, workers are dying. Low delivery costs and increased Parcel volumes result in couriers taking on impossible loads to maintain their job, said Jin Kyung-ho, a union leader who represents family members of the deceased workers. Kim Kim Dong-kyu said that in late October, he met officials from Hanjin, where his brother had worked for more than a year. Hanjin officials apologized for the death of his brother and promised compensation, he said. They had disputed whether he died from overwork. They apologized as a formality, Mr. Kim said. Days after sending the message to the co-worker saying he was exhausted, Mr. Kim didn't report to work. Friends found his truck parked outside his home. They called his phone and heard it ringing inside his apartment. A locksmith opened the door and Mr. Kim's friends found him dead inside. At Mr. Kim's funeral last month, his five-year-old niece noticed family members gathered in front of her uncle's photograph and asked whether it was his birthday. No one could tell her she wouldn't see him again, Kim Dong-kyu said. All I'm left with are text messages on his phone that say, Delivery complete, he said. Okay, let's turn to our conversation for today. Really glad to bring my guests on and introduce them. Let me introduce first Yonsei Kang, who maybe needs no Introduction. If you've been following COVID calls, this is Yansil's third visit to COVID calls. Really happy to bring her back. Yansil Kang is currently a visiting assistant professor at Drexel University in the history department. She's interested in understanding the intersection of the environment, science and technology and disasters, especially in East Asia. She's working on a project, Mineral Time, Bodily Time, Asbestos, Slow Disaster and Toxic Politics in South Korea, which explores the history and politics of asbestos the environmental hazard that shaped environmental health policies in South Korea. My second guest today is Hallam Stevens. He's an associate professor of history at Nanyang Technological University, Singapore. His work focuses on the history of technology, particularly in the domains of the life sciences and information technology. He's the author of Life Out of Sequence, a data-driven history of bioinformatics, which appeared with the University of Chicago Press in 2013 and Biotechnology and Society, an Introduction, which also appeared with Chicago in 2016. He's also co-editor of post Genomics: Perspectives on Biology After the Genome, which appeared in 2015. He's currently the head of the history program at Nanyang. And he also holds appointments at, as the Associate Chair for Research in the School of Humanities and the Associate Director of the Nanyang Technological University Institute. Halam Stevens and Sil Kang, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls today.
1: Hi, thank, thank you for inviting.
0: Yeah, Hi. Right. Thank, thanks for having me. And I do have to award, uh, it's not a cash award, I'm sorry to say, but I do award people who stay up very late or get up extremely early to come on COVID calls. Hallam, what
2: time is it there? Uh, it's just after 6 a.m.,
0: so. That's some COVID calls dedication there. really appreciate it. Let me ask you first, um, so you're all calling, but maybe you can tell us a little bit more, calling from Singapore, um, what's the pandemic situation there today?
2: The pandemic situation here is um, very, very stable, it has been for quite a while. Um, I believe that there have been no uh, cases reported uh, in Singapore um, for maybe about 20 days or something like that, with the exception of uh, cases that have been imported into the country from outside. Yeah. So. Uh, people who've come arrived at the airport, uh, but those people have been placed uh, into quarantine. Um, in any case, so they're not—they haven't spread it further within within the uh, Singapore population. So, uh, very things are very, very safe, very, very stable here. In in fact, there's yeah, not much to worry about at the moment in terms of in terms of coronavirus.
0: It's very hard for me to relate to that reality. I mean, can you even get a front
2: page headline in Singapore about the coronavirus? Uh, Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, a lot is still happening. There's still a lot of restrictions here. And, uh, you know, I'm sure we'll get into why that is. Um, Mm -hmm. And certainly, uh, I mean, really now the big question is the economy, actually. And um, uh, the Singapore... Uh, the Singapore economy depends on trade. It's a it's a trans, huge transshipment port. It's a it's an international hub um, for people and goods, and you know all of that has been shut off. And so now the problem is how to how to reopen, uh, and that's that's a big issue. And um, so a lot of the headlines sort of are really a, around that, right? How do you reopen? What steps are being uh, taken? What steps can be taken? Um, to towards that because uh, the economy has shrunk uh, massively. I think I saw something like forty two percent in the second quarter or something like this. So wow. it's a huge, huge blow. Yeah.
0: Uh, that's a tension. I'm, I know we'll talk about it as we as we right. go, but it's it's not only the experience of Singapore, but other countries that have managed the pandemic well. But yeah. the infection rate and the death rate is is only one part of this disaster. Right. Um, and so, well, okay, I look forward to hearing more about that. Yonse, so let me yeah. ask you um, where you're calling from and how it's looking there.
1: All right. I'm calling from Philadelphia. And uh, just like many other cities, uh, states in the United States, Philadelphia and Pennsylvania have been experiencing uptick of the uh uh, confirmed cases. So as of last Friday, November twentieth, the regulation has been strengthened. So including high schools, colleges going online, uh, indoor dining is banned, and indoor all sort of indoor indoor entertainment, indoor exercising is banned, including museums. And interestingly, Pennsylvania just banned alcohol sales on the Thanksgiving Eve. Uh, until the Thanksgiving morning which I learned that is one of the largest party night in the United States so they just banned it just to just for the sake of you know preventing any further uh, surge of cases but what I observed last weekend is that uh, Philadelphia city center is very much crowded Mm -hmm. Uh, restaurants are full filled with people dining outside which seems like dining outside is no more uh, a temporary measure, but it looks more like with the heaters, with the tents, uh, it, it looks more like a permanent setting now. And then they blocked certain roads to just to install, you know, tables and stuff. So it's it's a bit concerning, you know, uh, you know considering that they just strengthened the regulation. Um, people doesn't seem to be bothered to, you know, gather outside, dine outside and then, that was something surprising to me.
0: The point of being outside is that On the the particles, yeah, particles disperse yeah. themselves and the weather gets yeah. below 65 degrees and you build a structure around the outside <laughs> dining.
1: <laughs> True. And then they have heater and then it's mm-hmm. the level of the density of people around that area doesn't... S- Seemed to be quite safe you know although the we assume that the air, air is blowing and it has much better circulation than the indoor spaces uh but still you know it wasn't very it was it didn't look very safe uh for me mm. so that's what i've observed and uh just briefly for south korean and it's all, also increasing and it's It's local, unlike Singapore, it's local uh, infection, local clusters that worries uh, South Korean government. And another concern is that there is a national college entrance exam coming early Mm -hmm. December uh, with 900, uh, 900, uh, 490,000 students and large amount of teachers who administers that uh, for one day. And it's, it's a very challenging task to administer. And it's the test, you know, every high school students mm-hmm. are looking for. And even, you know, airplane does not land for this 25 minutes of the English listening test time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the pressure, how, how you know, the entire nation is, you know, holding wow. their breath for the day. So it's a very uh, challenging task. And then they are trying to try best, but we'll see how it will go.
0: It's amazing. So they're going to basically take on the largest social distancing exercise that they've tried yet in South Korea throughout this pandemic.
1: Yes, I would say it's much challenging than having a uh, general election during the pandemic. Mm.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, I want to make sure people know also that, uh, Yansil, you were part of a discussion. It's episode number 157, if people are looking for it, on October 27th, Life in Quarantine, Mm -hmm. also Mm -hmm. with Aram Jung. And Hilda Van den that day, and uh, which so you have the real perspective of South Korea and the United States, and in, mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, just even hearing, hearing you describe what sounds the way you described it, the sort of intolerable risk of everybody sitting outdoors and eating mm-hmm. inside enclosed spaces. Mm-hmm. Americans, many of whom who I think are trying to be very careful, have looked at that and said, okay, well that seems that seems fine. So you have a very unique perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, going from one culture where many of the risks that we're adopting in the U.S. are intolerable, Mm -hmm. I think, in South Mm -hmm. Korea, um, and vice versa.
1: Yeah. Um, The level of the sense to the numbers, sense to the confirmed cases is Mm. totally different. We have, uh, South Korea, for example, had just above 300 confirmed cases per day last few days, and then whole country went, you know, crazy. And then they they uh, increased the level of social distancing to uh, the second level, which was, which is the mid, which is pretty harsh level. You, you, you limit the uh, gathering. Uh, you're not supposed to have uh, more than, I guess, 50 person gathering indoors. So that's pretty harsh. A lot of my, Friends who planned wedding uh, had mm. to postpone multiple times, in right. you know, just to you know fit in all the guests in one place and yeah, uh, you know. So you you see the different sense of risk going on there. And then just a few days ago, my mom, I had a call with my parents, and then they were surprised to hear that it's every minute or so people a person is dying of COVID nineteen in the United States. Mm-hmm. That was the I think yesterday's news, um, they can't even imagine why that is happening, to be honest. Um, And it's simply uh, a a puzzle for them, uh, how could uh, the system let that happen? So I'd say it's a totally different sense of risk going there and then what is considered to be risky is a bit different. Yeah, I shall talk more, but so is the uh, responsible behaviors Um, and what are uh, responsible behavior. The idea of responsible behavior and trust to to each other is totally different, I guess. Mm -hmm.
0: It's amazing what you know. I mean, this is disaster research in general that we find Mm -hmm. out about disaster, but we also find out a lot about uh, cultural. Mm-hmm. sort of perspectives around risk and risk toleration and the sort of broader political economy more generally. Helen, let me bring that back to you. Maybe you can give us just a condensed version of how the pandemic sort of emerged on the scene in Singapore, what the government's initial reaction was. And then I want to really hear um, kind of your analysis of the technological side of that, what kinds of technologies were brought to bear on understanding, surveilling and managing yeah. the pandemic from the Singaporean perspective
2: yeah yeah so I mean, perhaps it's helpful to give a little bit of sort of very basic context So Singapore is um a very very small island. Um, the land area is about the size of kind of the five Manhattan boroughs like stuck together. Um, you can take a subway from the airport, which is on one end of the island to my university, which is on the other end. it takes about an hour and a half sitting on the on the subway. So you can get a sense of how small it really is and consequently, you know a, a sense of uh, vulnerability as well, I think, around, because of its, its size, it's quite dense, there's five and a half million people uh, living here. Um, uh, about 70% of the population are ethnic Chinese, um, so that, um, uh, apart from geographical proximity, uh, this also means that there are close, for example, business ties uh, to China. Um, and so this was obviously consequential for the pandemic. Um, because uh, there were, you know, already in January, um, so I remember around Chinese New Year, which was the end of January, uh, earlier this year, um, this was already, people were very aware of this, people were aware of coronavirus, knew that it was a problem. Uh, And so the government reacted very, very swiftly, um, partly because they knew that there were a lot of travelers from China uh, in Singapore who could be spreading the virus. Um, and so they um, did a number of things. They implemented quarantines for travelers. Um, in some cases, uh, closed the borders. They issued masks to everybody. Um, at first, we were told, um, in fact, not to wear the masks unless we were sick, but um, we did. they did issue them. We could pick them up at our kind of local community center here. Um, also, I think the kind of centerpiece really of Singapore's response has been really, really rapid. Uh, contact tracing, uh, so really putting to work um, a group of of um, people from from the government who could very, very rapidly track down where people had been. So this um, this was first done by interview. So if you arrived at the airport and you subsequently were diagnosed with um, COVID, they would interview you and say, "Where have you been?" Um, And this was then corroborated with uh, ATM records, credit card records, um, uh, taxi records, hotel records, uh, so a very elaborate system of both kind of um, technological but also kind of interview-based contact tracing. And that, that worked, it seemed to work very, very well. Um, uh, at, and Singapore seemed to, I mean, the ca- there were cases spreading. We're talking about February and March here, um, but it seemed to be getting things relatively under control. I think the contact tracing time was about four days. Um, they they got it down to about four days. So they really had the aim of um, getting what they called the complete graph, right? So basically the list of everybody that some somebody had had contact with, and then placing all of those people um, on... Either quarantine or what's some what's also called here stay home notice, right? So you you're instructed to kind of stay home and um, you know not go out uh, for any reason, and um, obviously there are kind of punishments associated with that it, with violating those rules as, as well. Um, yeah, so that's the kind of basic mm-hmm. aspects of the response. Um, technolo- the sort of technology stuff. I mean, um, you know. Basically, this is something I've kind of written about a a little bit, but um, so this has now been, I mean, basically the the main kind of technological responses have been to kind of supplement contact tracing um, or to sort of tech up contact tracing in some ways um, with specifically apps. So um, we all in Singapore now have an app on our phone called Safe Entry. Um, which is tied to our kind of national identification number. And whenever you go into a mall, a cinema, uh, a restaurant, a shop, you need to scan a barcode. Uh, mm-hmm. And this basically um, then says that you've been there. And the idea is that if somebody else has been in that shop at the r- roughly the same time um, with who is then diagnosed or is then tested positive with the coronavirus, they will contact the Ministry of Health will contact me and say you need to uh, get tested or you need to go into stay home notice um, or potentially into quarantine. Um, so that's, uh, that's safe entry. And then there's also uh, an app called Trace Together, um, which is something that operates on Bluetooth. And this is not about location, um, but about tracking your close associations. So uh, basically the idea is if you have the app on your phone, Uh, which the government has strongly encouraged, then it exchanges if you're nearby somebody, it's roughly about 10 meters. What's that in? It's like, uh, you know, something like 20 feet, right? 16, Mm -hmm. 20 feet. Um, Then you exchange a Bluetooth ID with that other person's phone. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it stores a record in your phone uh, of all the people that you've been in sort of close association with And the idea, again, is if uh, you, for example, are tested positive for coronavirus, then the Ministry of Health would ask you to upload the data from your phone, which would give them a list of the people you've been nearby um, for the past uh, three weeks. Um, And that would then be used to alert them and to facilitate the process of contact tracing.
0: Now, I mean, for someone like myself, who's in the United States, I'm in New Jersey, we're not out much. I go for a run in the woods. I might go to the grocery store. If I used uh, Trace Together, uh, then that might be be a couple dozen people, maybe. But you're in Singapore where things right now, I mean, I know there's restrictions, but if you're in a hotel or moving through a mall or down the street, I mean, doesn't that have the potential that there could be hundreds or thousands of people in, involved yeah. in, in that?
2: Absolutely. Uh, yeah. In fact, uh, it tells me on my app uh, how many people I've uh, kind of contacted. And the number cool. is for a normal day of moving around, um, you know, not a day where I work from home, for example, but a day where I might go to a few shops or go and eat in a restaurant, uh, the number is in the thousands. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a, it's potentially a huge amount of data, <laughs> um, a, a vast amount of data. Um, there's a little bit of ambiguity around uh, the timing here. So, at first, um, the idea was that it would only that it would ping other phones, um, I guess every kind of minute or so, and you would have to be in proximity for something like fifteen minutes at least. Um, before it would mm-hmm. kind of record the before it would sort of exchange the IDs in a permanent way mm-hmm. that seems to have um, kind of changed because mm-hmm. i you know there's no way um, that I'm around thousands of people um, for that amount of time every day right, right. certainly mm-hmm. um, so yeah there's some there certainly seems to be they're tweaking i think they're tweaking a little bit yeah. how how this works and um, yeah, but there's also a sense of time right here. It depends how long you've been in, sure. in contact with people. Uh,
1: yeah. Can I interrupt just briefly? Is that I mean I didn't watch the whole entire season, but it kind of reminds me of this diasporic uh, version of those one of the Black Mirror episodes. You know, like there's a dating app installed in each other's phone, and then if. They find a match within proximity, and they ping their phones, and then they <laughs> kind of connect mm-hmm. it. But it's it's the pandemic version of it yeah, like. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. It's sort of like the uh, the opposite of of, of attraction, all right. right? if somebody, you want to stay away from the people yeah. who might have coronavirus, <laughs> right? <that's> right. Yeah. <laughs> right.
0: My phone is now full of of contact information for people who I want to stay away from. It's it, <laughs> but it's. Right. I have a lot of questions, Uh, (laughs) but uh, let me put it. Let me just put a pin in that for a second, because. I want to hear like I want to hear more about how people have reacted to it both I mean the numbers I mean if you if you sketch out a causality here the 28 people having died of covid-19 in singapore mm-hmm. even for a very small country is just astounding yeah. and so I mean on the one hand if you say well the causality here is clear I mean maybe these apps are are gathering a lot of data and it's demanding a lot of people to want to share that information, but look at the, at the result. I'm not sure that's yeah. a good causality. Are, are people, is the government sort of leaning on that and saying, this is why we have this level of success. Uh,
2: to some more, I would say that, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of complexity here. In fact, I think that some of the reasons for the very low uh, numbers of deaths are, um, have to do with, well, certainly has to do with the medical system, right? The medical care is at a very high level. And there's no doubt that um, people have received people who have been sick have received the attention that they need. Um, and that that that's part of the story here. I also think that, that a lot of the contact tracing um, ha- was happening before traced traced together before these apps even really emerged. I mean, they emerged very quickly. Um, But still, I think a lot of the kind of manual contact tracing, if you want to call Mm -hmm. it that, uh, even though it did have some kind of technological components to it, was actually working very, very well um, before any of these apps were in place. So I think that the uh, the messaging around these apps now has become more about... Um, improving contact tracing even further, but also maintaining vigilance, right? Mm. So we need to maintain vigilance, uh, and especially in order to open up, uh, to reopen the economy uh, and to reopen to travel. Um, I think that's a that's a big part. Obviously, as I mentioned, that's a huge challenge for Singapore um, right now, how to reopen. And in order to do that, at least the government is saying, well, we need these apps Uh, in order to be able to do that. And, in fact, the government has almost – I mean, pretty – I think it's pretty explicit. They've said unless a certain number of people – they're saying something like two-thirds of the population downloads the apps, we won't – we basically won't lift certain kinds of restrictions, uh, social distancing kind of restrictions. So there's a kind of – a little bit of a kind of carrot uh, argument, right? If you download the app and you comply, then we will – lift some of the restrictions on on movement including potentially on international travel
0: i want to yanson i want to bring you in on south korea just a second but i want to um i want to just point to this question from jacob steer williams who's asking i this great question to think a little bit about the historical preconditions that make this kind of not only the technology possible but the compliance part and singapore my depth of knowledge of singapore's history is not too deep but i mean this is a a country that's had—it's um, been a colony twice in in the last seventy-five years. Uh, so there's a precondition there of understanding the evolution of public health system, right? right. And then yeah. it's had yeah. its own independence yeah. from Britain since what nineteen sixties?
2: Right? Yeah, it's complicated. It was yeah. uh, independent in nineteen fifty-seven, but then it was. Part of, it was part of Malaysia for a while and then kicked out and finally got its independence fully in 1965. So, but yeah, there's a lot to say about this question. Um, the colonial history of public health certainly, um, but I would, I mean, also one could think about the history of SARS here in mm. sort of 2003. Um, this uh, impacted Singapore in, in more, in a bigger way than it did. It's, it was more significant than it was in the West, certainly. So there was some kind of preparation um, sort of institutionally, I think, as well as perhaps kind of culturally, I think, for this kind of, for this kind of pandemic. Um, and then I also, yeah, I mean, I think the the biggest thing that stands out to me here is kind of the post-independence way in which the country has been kind of managed as well, which is a kind of, I mean, one of the things you could say about that is that it, there is a kind of large dependence on or large kind of stock put in technology in general right Mm -hmm. that in fact um, at least since the 1980s Singapore uh, has become a kind of very modern uh, kind of tech advanced society and Mm -hmm. thinks of itself as that way and I would even say that a great deal of the government's kind of legitimacy um, is based on the idea that they deliver have delivered Um, You know, I mean, I imagine there's some some similar things to be said about South Korea. They have delivered a kind of, for example, you know, a world-class subway system, right? That is Mm -hmm. sort of an example of what the government has provided kind of technologically um, for the people. So I think this idea that technology can solve problems Mm -hmm. and technology should be a part of the kind of response um, and should play a major role in keeping us safe, um, is, you know, I think that's, that kind of is very much a historical kind of thing that certainly, yeah, has, has roots in the, in the post-colonial period. It's,
0: it's fascinating. And it's also, you know, to bring it back to the United States perspective, it's such a mixed picture because we've, you could look at the outright rejection of technology in many right. states in the United States, the rejection of tracing, contact tracing apps, the right. rejection even of the use of a face mask. And you say these people are COVID Luddites. I mean, they just refuse to use the technologies that are available. Right. And yet the president of the United States initiated Operation Warp Speed and uh, you know right. this sort of national focus on a vaccine. So it's, there's still a sort of a focus on a techno fix, but it was um, one that was going to be delivered in a sort of a Manhattan Project Mindset rather than one that could be individually utilized. Yonso, right. I want to bring you in on this because, well, first of all, just to hear your reaction to what Halem is talking about and also bring in the South Korean context around tracing, uh, quarantine enforcement, and the way technology has mm-hmm. been used there.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I have so many points that I want to respond to uh, to the questions and then uh, Halem's points. And then I have some um, uneasy feelings with this uh, sort of culture explanations of why and how East Asian countries in this pandemic have controlled better than Western societies. So that's, um, I don't know, to me that's a bit too far-fetched. Uh, to say that some some countries have a Confucius culture, some mm-hmm. countries uh, people tend to comply and to the national policies. Though, so that's why it's working. It's it's sort of, you know, that's that's a sort of equivalent to American people are rogue <laughs> not to follow sure. all the rules. So it's that's a bit it's a bit difficult. Uh, it's a bit you need to be, be you want to be very careful in that explanation. Mm-hmm. But rather I want to emphasize like Kalem did um recent experience with the disasters. For example, Holland mentioned about SARS, uh, South Korea, MERS, uh, Mediterranean uh, uh, syndrome, that MERS was the big one, although it was one of the greatest, the largest uh, uh, cases outside the Middle East. And uh, back then it was the problem. uh, The problem was that Uh, uh, contamination or or contagion within the hospital and the lack of transparency uh, from the part of the government Mm -hmm. on the uh, information about who's uh, infected and how those people are controlled. So those two parts were forming the great basis of, to to my understanding, great basis of today's uh, pandemic control. And also we often forget uh, about animal diseases. So there's a mouth and foot diseases in South Korea that has been troubling a lot. And AI and many of those uh, animal diseases uh, were in South Korea controlled very aggressively. Mm-hmm. It is very well known for, you know, uh, I don't know how to what's it's called in English, but they just killed entire, you know <laughs> entire farm. Uh, if once you find find a disease on one there, so it's a very aggressive sort of way of dealing with the infectious diseases in general in both uh, both animals and people. So I'd like to emphasize that that's the uh, that was the experience that South Korea had previously that formed uh, today's pandemic response. And regarding that part of MERS being uh, Information being not transparent with the case of MERS, South Korea with this uh, COVID-19, uh, they haven't too transparent um, sort of. Uh, so, to control the pandemic, uh, to control the to to do the trace contact tracing, so first they do have this sort of self-quarantine map. You know, they have GPS-based location tracking on on it. And then you have to upload uh, your temperature, daily temperature check to that system so that it is directly connected to the health officials who monitors your status. So it's a a two-way, it's a one, is it two-way monitoring or one-way monitoring, but it's a monitoring system uh, basically uh, from the health uh, local health officials of those who are self-quarantining. and also there is a electronic bracelet called safety band introduced mm-hmm. for those who violates the self-quarantine uh, rules. So if they don't pick up the phone calls, if they go outside of the designated quarantine spot, you know they get sanctioned. So they get to uh, have this bracelet. And if you get farther away from the uh, cell phone or if you try to dis- disable this thing you know you get health officials or police police coming in knocking at your door so that has been <clears throat> introduced uh, to uh, control to, to the contact tracing also um, to there's a uh, not like Singapore's case like, safe entry app. We have this uh, QR code, very simple QR code based registry of every entry of facilities, restaurants, cafes. Mm -hmm. So basically they collect your phone numbers and uh, time of entry so that like Hala mentioned, if if there is any case happening, you know, you get the notification that you get, you need to get to to be tested or you need to self-quarantine. But what I really wanted to Discusses that this use of um, telecommunication log uh, that is used to do this massive contact tracing two times in in May and August. Uh, so in in May there was a outbreak in the area called Itaewon in Seoul, which is known for bars and restaurants and clubs. Um, and often young people from all over the country gather there over the weekend, and then they spread. So that that place had once became the center of, you know, um, right. disease. So they used this telecommunication log, and they collected nearly, I have a number here, nearly a uh, more than ten thousand. Where is it? Ten thousand people's. Uh, information was given to the public health department. Mm -hmm. And in August, there was a large anti-President Moon demonstration. Uh, You can say it is pretty safe to say they are uh, uh, sort of uh, pre-Trump, I mean, pro-Trump, pretty similar to Mm -hmm. politically and their attitude to virus, uh, COVID-19 is pretty similar to uh, pro-Trump supporters. Mm So they had this big demonstration and they have, they saw this, uh, exp, exp, uh, the case with Itaewon. So they turned off their phones,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, which ended up still uh, the telecommunication companies were able to collect like 50,000 uh, people's log to the public health officials, but they managed to get away, which becomes today's became the seed of today's um, uh, outbreaks. Um, So that kind of causes, turned out to be very effective in tracing pretty much everyone who was there uh, at that time. But at the same time, you raise the concern of how much access should be given to the uh, health authorities. You know, it's, it's, you don't really need any consent uh, of giving your telephone logs, um things like that so that kind of shrinks in certain way civil liberty that you uh that uh, freedom of you know uh gathering freedom of do the public uh public demonstration things like that There has been sort of tensions between whether public health concerns go ahead or that expressing political concerns You know, expressing their democratic values, their democratic um, um, democratic duties, sort of, uh, comes first. So, you know, there has been tension around that formed around technological use of use of technology in pandemic control. Let's say. I
0: I mean, these are all really great points. I just want to remind folks, you're listening to COVID calls. We're talking about the use of technology and COVID-19, particularly in East Asia and Singapore and South Korea. And um, Mm -hmm. Yansil, to your really excellent point too, that, and I don't want to only blame the media on this. There've been a lot of politicians helping with this as well, but to sort of say, well, because the number of cases has been low, then there's sort of an East Asian culture, Mm -hmm. which... Um, yeah. it's racist. I mean, obviously, but yeah. it goes beyond that too. it It flattens the potential for understanding not just understanding the reaction to the pandemic, but also the the ways that the pandemic exposes political tensions that do exist in Singapore mm-hmm. and do exist in South mm-hmm. Korea. as you were just explaining, Ynsel. Mm-hmm. So, and Halam, I want to mm-hmm. bring that to you. Um, you've published somehow already an article um. Great piece uh, in East Asian STS with Monami Badra Haines, and I just want to—it's about the Trace Together app you were talking about. I'm just going to read a sentence from this. All right. You're talking about um, the way it's the pro—the way people look at it and say, "Hey, this has been a success." But you also say, nevertheless, opinions about the app expressed online, for example, in comments on Facebook, were sharply divided. Many Singapore residents embraced the app as a critical tool provided by the government for fighting the virus. The app made them feel safe amidst uncertainty. Others were less sanguine, fearing that the app was a mechanism for government surveillance, data valence, or digital spying. Mm -hmm. And so that taps into a sort of broader discussion just about the way the government in Singapore uses technology.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's a a huge (laughs) amount – to say about this and this this kind of tension here and uh, you know i mean i, I agree with yonso completely about this issue of not reducing this to kind of cultural kind of explanations here but that you know actually if we begin to think about what explanations there are this ha- this does you know go back to the kind of history to the politics and i think that these are more interesting explanations in in many kinds of ways and yeah i mean right we shouldn't Certainly, it's not as if, as that you know, what you just read suggested, it's not as if there's no resistance uh, to these kinds of technologies here at all. And in fact, um, what has happened in South Korea with the use of the tel- telephone logs and GPS, um, that has not happened here. They will, they, in fact, um, things like the Trace Together app have been explicitly branded as privacy preserving, interestingly. Um, because they don't use GPS, we've been reassured by the government time and time again that they do not use that they do not tie uh, you to location, right? Uh, so they they're marketed at least as being much less invasive than following you around, you know like tracking your phone basically, which is essentially what I guess is you know, has happened in various places in, in, in South Korea, right? So yeah, I mean, there is a kind of the government has certainly, and the government wants to push out this this technology here, but they're also aware that there are certain kinds of resistances uh, within yeah. within the Singapore population and that they need to be kind of responsive um, to that uh, and that they can't just kind of, that they, there will be pushback and there has been pushback. In fact, um, something like, uh, fifty thousand. I think the number is slightly over fifty thousand people signed a petition against making the app mandatory, which was contemplated at one point. Um, and fifty thousand doesn't sound like a lot, but uh, in a country where civil society is—I mean, there's only three point five million citizens of Singapore anyway—and um, then civil society is, you know, fairly, you know, curtailed. I, I would say. I think it's fair to say here. Uh, so 50,000 signatures on anything uh, is kind of a lot. Um, so there is some sense that the government has had to respond um, to kind of push back about these kind of privacy issues uh, and transparency issues and that they have done that. Um, whether, that whether that is, you know, um, whether we find that kind of acceptable or kind of acceptable response, I think, um, is still kind of an open question, I guess, right?
0: And just to follow up, and I want to ask this of you, Jansel, as well, when people do frame a critique of the use of these kind of technologies, so either if they're directly geolocating people, or if they're basically saying, Mm -hmm. hey, please participate, and if you don't, we might have to consider additional, more restrictive public health measures, Mm -hmm. um, to what extent is the critique of that dip back into history? I mean, to what extent is the critique of that sort of talk about military rule, authoritarianism, Mm -hmm. I'm I'm sort of curious about how the counter-narrative works, because in the United States, you know, the counter-narrative against basically, unfortunately, almost any kind of public health restrictions Mm -hmm. um, in many Mm -hmm. states in the United States has been, I mean, you don't even have to spell out the history. People just Mm -hmm. say, this is big government once again. Mm -hmm. But in the United States, Mm -hmm. in many states, that, that opens up the Pandora's box, which for for many people, makes them think about the civil rights era, it makes mm-hmm. it brings back the civil war. I mean, it's sort of any bad mm-hmm. thing you want to think about the government, it, it mm-hmm. pops that back into their mind. So politicians mm-hmm. in the United States mm-hmm. um, have been very cagey about, mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. packaging that dissent. Mm-hmm. to bring back up a his- historical cases that they want to they want to leverage. I don't know, let me Jan- so let me ask you about that first and then Holland bring you in because these the, the counter argument against the use of what can be presented as life-saving technology is a space we should be looking at right now to understand this pandemic mm-hmm. in a deeper way, I would
1: argue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's actually pretty difficult difficult question to answer. Um Many of the counter arguments, interestingly, didn't really bring back what I, the counter arguments I hear is does not bring the sort of authoritarian government, the past with the authoritarian government or military control, the possibility of complete control of the civil society by the government. It, to me, what I hear, what I read, that didn't really mm-hmm. brought up partially because current administration is democratic uh, on the side of, against of, you know, authoritarian regime. It's a, there's a very strong history over there, strong association over there. Um, But most of the counter argument I hear uh, is the concern over uh, privacy, and concern over uh, releasing this information, um, mm. the sensitive information, it could be sensitive information to, mm. to those who are exposed, exposed their whereabouts in certain days. Uh, what I hear is more about that concern. Okay. Um, so yeah, so it's interesting that I don't hear that, to think, think to hearing your question, it's interesting that I didn't hear much about that counter-narrative. Um, yeah, but, but the concern is that, uh, I mentioned earlier, is that too much of exposure of information, uh, uh, of whereabouts of those who uh, exposed, uh, kind of caused uh, sort of risk of outing of LGBTQ communities related to earlier Itaewon outbreak. Itaewon area is not just the busiest nightlife area, but it is also a site for LGBTQ communities. And they, uh, one of the clubs were turned out to be gay clubs. Um, So the media went crazy about, and Christian, population right. went crazy about uh, gay people disrupting the public health measures and, and, and the, the entire social stigma comes in and Korean community in general is very conservative about uh, homosexuality, uh, gender issues and then all those you know, stigma comes in uh, to the discourse of uh, right. public health measures and you know, uh, control and data privacy issues.
0: Halum, let me bring you in on this sort of way you're reading the discourse, yeah. the sort of government critique discourse there in
2: Singapore. Yeah. I mean, I think the, you know, it's in many, in many ways, I think talking to people in the U S colleagues, friends, I often think the problems are sort of often the opposite. We have the opposite problems here that we have in the United States, right. Um, and too little governance, I think in many places in the United States, we perhaps here in Singapore arguably have sort of too much. And, um, you know, I think one of the, Things that one of the ways of relating that to your question, I think, is to say that certainly the idea of big government plays in a totally different way here. Big government is good. Big government is great. Big government brought you know Singapore from you know as they like to say, sort of fishing village to modern nation, or as Lee Kuan Yew put it, from third world to first in one generation. So big government is you know actually this was this is whatever this is this is made Singapore right. The government um, at least by their own accounting. Uh, made Singapore into what it is. So, you know, in fact, there is, a, in general, a high level of trust in, in government. I think that's that's the baseline from which people are operating. I think some of the narrative, the kind of counter-narratives that make people worry about privacy here are actually growing awareness of uh, the problems with social media and uh, kind of corporate data valence, right? But, you know, people are aware that Google is... Uh, you know, tracking their information about what they buy and what they do online, and and Facebook and Twitter and so on, right? And the, this, I think, there is a kind of a little bit of a growing discourse around, you know, that that kind of these kinds of issues, and I think that has now been transferred to worries about um, what the government is is doing with the with the data that's coming from from the pandemic. So I I, I don't think it's a in some ways, I don't think it's a direct critique of of the government. In some ways, it's a it's a more of something that's been transferred from from other worries about about data privacy.
0: Well, Halim, let me pick up another piece of this. So I had your colleague, your NTU colleague um, and friend of mine, Sufiqa Amir, on COVID calls mm-hmm. earlier on in the year, and we talked a bit. And he's written, I should say, he's written a wonderful essay, which is in the yeah. Social Science Research Council's. Um, disaster studies series that I um, am co-curating with Alexa Dietrich, and great piece. And he talks about the migrant worker side of this as well. Yeah. So, I mean, you're talking about. I mean, we've been talking about Singapore, or I have been talking about Singapore as a monolith, but that's completely incorrect because it's a yeah. it's a diverse society as as in social class as well as ethnicity, but also you have this very large migrant worker population, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, probably this should have come into the conversation earlier, and it's not the way that it went. But yeah, so I should say that almost all of the 58,000 cases that we've had in Singapore have been amongst the migrant workers, um, something like 90 percent um, or something like that. So this um, happened relatively early. I believe some outbreaks uh, began in the migrant worker dorms as early as March. Uh, and, uh, partly because of the living conditions in these dorms, people living very close together, um, crowded conditions, uh, the virus spread very rapidly in those, in those dormitories, um, and continued to spread rapidly. And this kind of, yeah, I mean, I think this is also created, I mean, obviously, I mean, I think like other places, this kind of sort of reiterates the pattern of the most vulnerable members members of society really absolutely. bear the brunt of the risk. And, and that's absolutely what's happened here. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think one of the responses was kind of in some sense, panic, um, and the sense that things had got out, out of control, um, at, at least within the dormitories, the dormitories were sort of closed off pretty quickly, which raised all kinds of other problems. I mean, people were essentially kept... You know yeah i mean under under lock and key right i mean these became sort of almost like prisons in some sense um uh, but it also created a sense i think of panic and that the government had made a mistake um that they had let some aspect of the pandemic even though it was amongst a very specific part of the community um that they had not been watchful enough and that this had and and so i think part of the way the response has developed here is partly to, in some sense, I would say even make up for that, right? Um, to say, actually, no, look, um, we, you know, we've got it under control, right? That mm-hmm. um, in fact, some of the apps and the technology and the restrictive measures, I think, are, in fact, kind of political uh, demonstration uh, that, in fact... Um, they're, they've now, they've, they maybe that was a mistake, but we now have things um, under control in, in Singapore. And, you know, to be fair, also they have brought the migrant worker situation under control. Now, I think there are very few active cases, even in the dormitories, and some of those workers are now um, going back to work. Also, very few of them died, right? So that is also a tribute to the way the healthcare system worked.
0: It's, you know, to me, of course, that raises the same problem we're we're looking at in the United States and other in other places, which is that um, there's so many ways to read those numbers. But uh, one of the things we're learning about COVID is that you have the long haul syndrome, right. and then you have other sort of related, um, you know, disease impacts that are comorbidities that are affil- connected with it, and the mental health aspect of it as well. Um, So in Singapore, does the government express some sort of longer term um, uh, commitment to the health of uh, migrant workers in in the country or the commitment is only so long as they're living in the dormitory and employed?
2: Yeah, I mean, this has become a very fraught issue, honestly. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think there's a general, partly I think that there's pressure from the population again as well, that something needs to change about the way that Migrant workers are treated um, and the way the dorms operate. I think it's clear that there's been that this was already a kind of circulating issue, but it's some, certainly something COVID has brought to the fore here uh, and made more urgent. Um, one of the responses, um, you know, unfortunately, has been to uh, actually suggest that Singapore needs to reduce its dependence on migrant workers. In other words, well, this is too much of a risk. These people are too much of a risk, and so, in fact, we need to reduce um, the numbers. I I think it's very unlikely that that's it that that uh, is going to happen because um, Singapore depends on them too much, uh, in some sense. Um, but you know, I mean, I think that yeah, there is there is a concern that something something needs to change here, and I think there are sorts of new rules coming into to play about the way in which. I mean the dorms are privately run. they're not run by the government. so new rules for the dorm operators about how they're supposed to treat people. Um, but this is an evolving evolving conversation. so I think it's it's yet to be seen what will actually come out of this and whether it will make things better in the in the long in the long run. I mean, I think it could go either way. In fact, there were even some calls, again, speaking of technology, different type of technology, to put the uh, to put the workers, migrant workers on ships. Um, to have kind of floating dormitories, so they're isolated further from the population. Further isolated. Yeah. You know,
0: so, yeah. yeah. But and here's the opening. I mean, I've had so much frustration with the um, national narrative, and and I mean we're having this discussion as a sort of national narrative, but I think we're usefully pushing back on on that. And and here's what I mean by that, because. Um, you know, very similar situation to what you just described, Halam, exists in the American Midwest, well, all over the United States, but we've seen it in the American Midwest in meatpacking plants, where migrant workers are working, they work off the books, and this was, uh, in the late summer, the center of the pandemic in the United States. And it raised this question, uh, you know, and I really appreciated your answer, it raised this question about, um, well, I mean, these are just counties in the United States that can't function anymore. And is it I mean can we really even these are conservative parts of the United States can we actually go forward with the idea that the whole meatpacking industry is built on immigrant labor that we can just turn our back on them when they get sick? And the conversation broke just as you described interestingly mm. that and so here we're comparing Nebraska and Singapore some people said obviously we have to bring these people out of the shadows there has to be a path Right. to documentation. And, and other people said, this is just too important uh, to the economy of these states. We can't deal with an immigration issue now. We just have to keep these plants running. And the president of the United States issued an executive order saying, keep the factories open. <laughs> so
2: there you yeah. have
0: I mean, I think this is where we can work really, I think, usefully across international boundaries to expose some of right. these these issues. so your thoughts on this?
1: Um, yes. I mean it reveals the weakest part of the society here and there. And the pattern, which part is the weakest aspect of the study is a bit different, but it seems like it's fair to say those who are uh, underwaged and um, frontline workers, um, uh, often immigrant with weak social security, and uh, South Korea too, It's um, Although it's not reported, I've read a few articles on, you know, South Korean entire South Korean policy is all about face masking, you know, distributing masks, mandatory, uh, mandating mask wearing. And then a lot of immigrant workers were not given uh, those public masks early on. So that caused some issue. And although many people in South Korea have refused to see that South Korean society is in fact very multicultural. There are immigrant, uh, uh, foreign, how do you say, um, uh, interracial marriages, especially between older uh, Korean male with the younger uh, females from uh, different countries. Uh, Also there are farms, uh, fishing industry, uh, factories that those are largely supported by immigrant workers and we are not that open to discuss about their status uh their what what their experience is like in south korean society so that's one thing korean society needs to see more clearly mm-hmm. for certain for certainly and there is another issue that uh scott you mentioned earlier um it's 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 a overall widening gap of wealth, and certain population is experiencing a length of works, uh, different two, three different jobs. And that had been revealed by this um, uh, contact tracing policies. So they reveal movement of certain uh, confirmed uh, people with the COVID-19, and then they turned out to be pretty cruel. Life, you know, daily life. They have two, three jobs, uh, going out 4 a.m., coming back home after midnight. Um, Not just laborers, but those who young uh, people who want to enter to, you know, certain who want to get a job. They tend to hang on this national exams, national teachers' exam, national uh, um, public officer exam. They're life pattern is house, uh, library, house, library. And that is revealed uh, Mm. to the open, I mean, it's cracked open, literally. And then everyone is so, uh, a lot of people have been seeing that labor conditions or uh, very harsh living uh, conditions for those younger people and then those who have uh, have uh, low paying jobs, so to speak. So I will say, yeah, so that's the weak heart uh, today's Korean society, I'd say.
0: It, it's amazing to me too uh, that, um, well, we're all historians of technology here, so we know what's coming, which is that this data, mm-hmm. if it's made available, I mean, imagine the kinds of of analysis and narratives that people, what we you've both just been talking about as the basis for human rights discussion, as a basis for growth of labor unions, of paths to citizenship, and a hundred other policy remedies to so we're looking at the pandemic and we're but then we're saying, well, here's a whole nother kind of social ill that's being yeah. exposed in the in the yeah. midst of this. And I guess that's I wanna wrap up here in a second, but I want to sort of give you each chance to sort of take us out in a longer term. Um or Singapore, South Korea or Asia more generally, you know these are many of these are countries which, as you said, Halim, um in terms of GDP, household income has gone from developing to first world uh, in one generation mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. a yeah. finely tuned inst- instrument its economy is to global capitalism. So 28 people right. have died and yet you've had you're in an economic, Recession, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, what's the future look yeah. like?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, it, yeah, it's there's no really good solution to this at the moment. I mean, I guess the vaccine is the big hope that everybody has, right? Um, that actually that will allow Singapore to open up, right? And mm-hmm. Apart from and that to restore its kind of economic, uh, you know, its economic status and be able to open its borders and trade Mm -hmm. and people coming and going and business and you know its hub kind of status. Uh, So, uh, you know, and some of the technology is certainly supposed to contribute to that too. In the absence of a vaccine, certainly. Mm -hmm. But I, I guess I wanted maybe as part of to make one other. Point here, and that that is, and maybe this is something that relates to Asia more broadly, even China. That I think that one thing that I see Singapore doing is also using this as a bit of an opportunity, the pandemic Mm -hmm. as a bit of an opportunity Mm -hmm. uh, to roll out and even maybe Mm -hmm. one might argue test out um, Mm -hmm. some of these kinds of technologies Mm -hmm. um, for collecting data. And I I think Mm -hmm. of this in particular in the context of what's called here the smart nation, right? Or smart Mm -hmm. city the Mm -hmm. smart city technology and this is something Singapore is pushing Mm -hmm. full steam ahead whether it's Mm -hmm. digital sensors, digital you know digital currency um, and these kinds of apps these kinds of technologies are kind of in some ways perfect ways to kind of trial out some of these kind of future imagined at least as future economic kind of generators right innovative kind of technologies Um, that, you know, have perhaps all these privacy and surveillance worries, but are imagined as kind of positive things uh, in the long run. So I think that, you know, there's that kind of aspect of looking towards the future here uh, as well.
0: Jansel, I want to give you the last word on that. Um, Historians are not supposed to look into the crystal ball, but I'm going to ask you to. And Helen has has raised some really interesting points, because this this question about the surveillance society is not Mm -hmm. a new one. COVID has thrown it into a new light. What's the story yeah. for South Korea in that regard?
1: Um, I I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, I would like to, uh, I mean, second what Halam just mentioned. South Korea also devoted to, you know, data-driven smart cities, uh, IoT, um, all that was in the picture of future countries, w- what the future country will be looked like. And then this is going to be a one-test-bed for, I hate to use the word testbed, but uh, one testing moment for the government on that issue. And then, as you as mentioned again, South Korea have been already trying to exploring their model of pandemic control, including all sorts of technologies, testing kits and the uh, contact tracing bracelet. They have been already exported to Saudi Arabia, uh, things like that. They are seeking opportunities here. So I don't know. And then that's on the one hand. And here uh, society in general is uh, the wealth gap is increasing. Uh, real estate price is skyrocketing. Uh, I can't really imagine myself buying a house in the near future. Mm-hmm. So that kind of thing is happening. So it's its a really uh, task should be juggling that, two uh, issues at hand uh, for South Korea society in general.
0: I wanna remind everybody you've been listening to COVID Calls and you can catch COVID Calls every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. Tomorrow we'll have a, a pre-Thanksgiving um, memorial episode with uh, Laurie Peake will be joining me tomorrow as well as Rafe Offer, both of whom have been on COVID Calls before, as well as Cecile, uh, Cecile Sternberger and other guests as well. So please join me at five o'clock tomorrow for that. And I want to thank my guests, um, COVID Calls regular, Yansil Kang. Thank you so much for coming back. And Halem Stevens, the Early Morning Award, um, and hope we can bring you back as well. Thank you both so much for your time today. Just a really interesting conversation.
1: Thank you. Yeah, thanks thank for you.
0: having me. Thank Stay you. healthy, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow at five o'clock.